The regulatory structure in the U.S. is so different from every other place on the planet that it bears resemblance to nothing. Now, a lot of other countries bear quite a bit of resemblance to each other, uh, but nothing is like the U.S. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. Today, I sit down with Zach Nurani, partner at Foundation Capital, a 28-year-old venture firm with over $3 billion in assets under management, currently investing out of its 10th flagship fund that has previously backed great companies like Stripe, Solana, Lending Club, and Bestnet, Alto, and more. In this episode, we discuss what Zach learned after spending almost a decade at Capital One and why there's such a strong fintech alumni network coming out of the bank, differences and similarities between U.S.-based founders and Latin American entrepreneurs, the importance of specializing in financial services and fintech, and how it's allowed Zach to distinguish fairy tales from reality, transitioning from operator to investor, best practices for board management, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great episode with Zach from Foundation. Zach, welcome to FinTech Leaders. Thanks for joining. Where are you calling us from? Thanks, Miguel. I'm here, I'm home here in, in my house in Los Angeles at the moment. Very nice. So we have a lot to talk about. You, you've been in FinTech for a while, and I'm sure you, you've accumulated a lot of learnings, lessons, and you've seen a lot of things. So I uh, would want to hear from you. Maybe tell us a bit about your career, your background. But I think one interesting aspect that you have is that you actually started at Capital One, which seems to be a factory for great fintech folks. So maybe uh, take us through your career, but also your time at Capital. Yeah, you know, it's, it was never really my intention or up until you know, more recently, my intention, but I spent my whole career in what, you know, what kind of deserves to be fintech, sort of innovation in the financial services markets, product innovation in financial services markets. But like, in no way was that, was that the goal coming in? The goal coming in was um, graduate college and either get a banking job or a consulting job. And, you know, the most interesting consulting job I, I could get my hands on was this specific role at Capital One. And it was, I was just, it was more than anything. It was, I was just so impressed by the people there, how articulate they were, how deeply they seemed to understand a world that I really had no point of view on, you know, like I knew what a credit card was, but like, so like sort of, but beyond there, like I really didn't have much perspective. And so, you know, the thinking was, Hey, yeah, this would be, be great folks to learn from. And yeah, ended up spending eight years, I think all told eight or nine years, all told at the company uh, across a variety of roles. But, you know, interestingly, they were always, you know, with an eye towards 
something that the business didn't do, you know, help us diversify beyond just being a credit card issuer. It's a existential imperative for us to transform from a model line lender, uh, a credit card company to, you know, sort of a multi-line retail bank. How do we do that? You know, how do we get a bank to accept our currency or, or another way to say, it, how do we go buy a substantial amount of retail bank? But all different kinds of projects and work relating to kind of what exists out there that we could be doing or, or that we need to figure out how to do because it's sort of where the growth is. And so at the very early stages, it was like, let's go look into getting into the prepaid debit card business because in 2004, 2005, I don't know that these names roll off the tip of most people's tongues these days, but Green Dot and NetSpend were, and Hire One deserves to be in there as well, were like the like the shining stars of financial services innovation, of, of fintech innovation. And a couple of years later, we were really looking hard at Bill Me Later as a, wow, as a, you know, that is a fascinating new form of credit originator, later acquired by PayPal and is now PayPal Credit. And it was really the first BMPL provider. But it was, you know, this is a business we should really think, we should really think about getting into. How do we do it? Should we buy them? That was, that was a, a, a long inquiry, inquiry that we, um, we embarked on. So always it was with this, this lens. And, you know, towards the end of my time frame, my time at Capital One, I got started getting involved. We had a small venture capital fund. It was doing this still was before there was like actually a term for fintech. So we called it like financially, financial services enabling technology. We'd literally say that like, you know, 60 times a day. And, you know, now it's sort of been contracted to fintech much, much easier. Um, and from there, I like sort of really acquired a, a sense for what venture was. And, you know, it was a, I had a bit of an epiphany moment where it's like, wow, this is the coolest kind of work that I could possibly imagine doing, the coolest kinds of puzzles, the coolest kinds of interactions, the cool, you know, the even the incentive structure, you know, love it or hate it, it's sort of, there's a real purity to it that I loved. And so I've been pretty, pretty hooked ever since. The path led me to business school and then out to, from Boston to, to, to the Bay Area. And uh, I've been got connected with the foundation team yeah, almost nine years ago now. And so that's really been my family for uh, longest, you know, longest stretch of my career. And yet, so, this, so these days where I kind of spend my time is really early stage fintech investing. So pre-seed, seed, uh, some series A, across all facets of fintech, certainly tons of infrastructure. We've done quite a bit of investing in the consumer side. And, you know, while a lot of you, primarily US-based, we've also kind of got a, a portfolio in Latin America that we're very proud of. Certainly, you know, not hard to get excited about opportunities uh, down there, but uh, but yeah, that's sort of the um, the five minute version. Yeah, yeah, and then I think there's a lot to explore in everything you've mentioned. What is it about Capital One that has produced not just investors, right? And there's several prominent venture capital investors that have come out of Capital One, but also a good number of entrepreneurs. Uh, they're building actually very interesting companies, and you know they have this Capital One DNA. Yeah, a ton of entrepreneurs. I actually feel like that doesn't get discussed often enough. One of my favorite sort of category of people to invest in. I've got a whole sort of portfolio of uh, former Capital One, you know, employees that really coworkers there as well. And you know, what is it unique about there? It, you know, I think it. In some ways, you could sort of, the way that people talked about how 
they found ways to bring to substantially upgrade the level of talent that was coming into that was that was in a always a, a very large industry, right? The banking and consumer finance industry. They succeeded Rich and Nigel and, and the whole you know machine that they built was really oriented around like how do we fundamentally bring in the best people that there are? And, and they got pretty maniacal about building systems for that. So it's sort of, you know, it's akin to the process that you go through for, you know, a McKinsey Bain, you know, type organization. It's highly qualified sort of case interviews where highly calibrated rather case interviews where it's sort of like, you know, performance on these things is something that you can gauge, you know, very explicitly. There's a math test. There's a personality test that you have to pass to to get to the next stage of interviews. And, you know, all of that, I think, from a top of funnel filter really helps a lot. And, you know, they were pretty inventive about certain things where it's sort of, I think they still, they they get credit for having been the first U.S. company to recruit directly from the IITs in India, just because it being the case that this is a, a massive pool of talent that is being undervalued. Sort of starts there, right, with like pretty inventive, structured kind of top of funnel processing. But like, you know, I think that the philosophy of the company is really about like, well, let's understand these complex markets deeper than anyone's ever been able to do before, you know, and get more creative about problem solving and getting, you know, kind of what you want to do about with that understanding. And so what comes from there is like, you know, it, people develop real expertise like deeper expertise than exists kind of elsewhere in the market. And so many founders that spend time in Capital One, you know, they were sort of trained around the kind of this this investigative process, this analytical process, but also acquired like real expertise in a certain area. So have like a real penetrating insight about like a version of the future that they can go create. And so all of those things are like amazing attributes. You know, it's not the end, end all and be all of what you're looking for in a founder, but it's a hell of a raw material to start with. And speaking of this training that you've mentioned that you get as an operator, not just at Capital One, but other places, of course, it's a mindset that you build that is super useful when you're on the ground building a company. That switch from operator to investor, right? There are certain aspects that you have to change because it's a different type of job, right? What was the hardest part for you when you made that switch from an operator helping a build a division of a company and then switching to very top-down approach and then, you know, actually focusing on just investing in early stage companies where someone else is building it. Yeah. You know, I think the learning process for me was, I think, pretty, pretty bespoke as a function of the types of roles that I had. I was either kind of an IC and sort of skunk work like projects or I was a role player and gigantic teams surrounded by people that were like had so much more experience and expertise than me. Um, and so, and so what I had to get my head around was initially I, I you know, my thought process was the degree to which this is uh, this thing that we're working on that I'm working on is a good idea. You know, certainly as an investor, you know, that's pretty prominent importance as well, but as an investor in the roles that I had, you know, at Capital One, it could really just subsist as that. It's like, is this a good idea or do I, you know, am I excited about what we're pursuing? Because it's really, it's either up to me or it's up to me and a ton of people that I, I have so much implicit trust in because they're so much more expert than I am. As an investor, this shifts to, is this a good idea? But also like, well, what about the people? You know, all of a sudden, you know, so this is like this really like painfully obvious point, but it's sort of 
what is your point of view on you know the people's ability to execute on what on on this idea and you know in many ways that overrides you know the goodness the degree of goodness of of the idea and and so that kind of a sort of shift of mindset right that it's sort of like good ideas are sort of a dime a dozen you know and that it's and it's really about who's executing on it and like who you're excited to work with in that respect that transition for me was like was pretty significant i've heard people say that they'd rather invest in a b type of idea with an a plus team instead of an a plus idea led by a b team do you subscribe to that yeah i mean i mean uh, you'd hope <laughs> you'd hope not to have to like make the trade offs right like maybe you shouldn't do either yeah, like if you knew if you knew you're 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 getting a B plus, like maybe don't run the race. But um, but yeah, like I think I think you're you're more likely to see you know outcome because like the idea is some is not static, you know, nor are the people necessarily, but the, but it, you know in some senses they are a little more static. But the idea can really oscillate, you know, can really evolve, and that's a as sort of what you're getting with you know people that you really believe are amazing is like it's more about a general problem space than it is you know a specific insight. Let's talk about fintech. At the end of the day, this is a fintech podcast. What, since you joined the industry, you know, what have been some of the major shifts that you've observed and that you've actually been able to ride this wave either as an operator or also as an investor? So maybe talk about some of the most consequential changes that you've seen in the industry. And then we can talk also a little bit about the future. It's been like almost 20 years, I guess, not quite, but um, the amount of growth and attention and focus and enthusiasm for what is fintech, you know, it wasn't really here. There wasn't really any. I remember talking to friends at Generalist Funds in 2007, 2008 about how I did uh, financial services or type stuff, financial services, technology, and you just get like a sideways look. That sounds incredibly niche. I couldn't possibly you know, kind of imagine, you know, bothering with that as a focus area. And it's gone to like, at this point in time, I don't know what the right, what a real number, measurement of this would be, but it, it certainly feels like one out of five VCs, you know, sort of has uh, fintech as like a primary focus area, if not like the focus area. And so it's like, that's wild to comprehend it. And in some senses, like, maybe it makes sense to, by many different kinds of measures, right? 20 to 30% of, of GDP is, you know, financial services sector. You know, in other senses, you could argue like we've gotten to a place where hype has gotten the better of what kind of value creation you can really expect to you know, see from this kind of a sector. And so, you know, what's changed is, you know, it's gone from, every, you know, people sort of not giving a shit to way too many people giving a shit and, you know, mistaking derivative kind of, you know, kind of copycatting of business models for innovation and telling fairy tales in many cases about, you know, what's going to be possible, what kinds of innovation is going to be possible, you know, who's going to be able to disrupt Visa MasterCard and, you know, what's going to upend Bloomberg and, you know, it's sort of things that, you know, in the cold light of day, not impossible, but, you know, certainly, you know, not easy, shouldn't be easy analogies to make and certainly shouldn't be easy analogies to you know, kind of raise raise a substantial amount of money around and get a lot of articles written. These are utilities in in our industries that will be very hard to you know classically disrupt. And as a specialist, that's something that I know you appreciate, and so do I. 
being a fintech specialist investor. I guess it, it, that that is an advantage to discerning from maybe more feasible ideas to to less feasible ones, um, especially in the regulated industry. How have you adapted kind of your approach from the moment an interesting entrepreneur comes to the door to the moment you commit? What are some of those key items, I guess, that you have to consider when you're evaluating an opportunity? Yeah, you know, as much as possible, right? It's it's easy to kind of make up some story about what you're doing and have that not really relate to what's happening on the field. But as much as possible, it's really like, what did you, know, you, you get your hands around? What are kind of deeply held beliefs you have about like sort of what should exist in the world, you know, and not merely, you know, well, this isn't a direct analogy, but like, you know, Google changes an algorithm and all of a sudden your SEO dries up and all of a sudden you you don't really have a business anymore, right? Like if one stroke of the pen, you know, if you will, can really kind of take away what you perceived as the opportunity you were exploiting, then like maybe that wasn't as big of a gap as it, you know, as you'd want it to be worth, you know, spending years on, you know, and, and a huge amount of energy and capital. So, you know, that's, it's not a great answer, but like, you know, it's basically like aim for bigger, you know, but also more nuanced, you know, kind of opportunities, you know, as these markets have gotten more competitive, right? There are more people like you and me, right? Trying to fund these kinds of opportunities. You know, my retreat has been to really move earlier and earlier, you know, to working with people, you know, that I've known a long time that I, and I sort of have an appreciation for like what they differentially understand about, you know, some certain part of the financial system than other people. And like, therefore, it's therefore like the depth of the insight they're sort of coming with and helping them build their business, you know? And so it's sort of, you know, they weren't necessarily, they didn't initially think of themselves as entrepreneurs as much as, as operators, operators that, that were, you know, kind of very deep in a sector. But when you do kind of start to pull it out of them, they sort of, you'd be surprised how many folks in that, in, the, in those sorts of situations have an amazing vision for the way this part of the world should work and how to get there. And the only problem, you know, it's sort of only problem is like, how do you build the company around this? And so what I've increasingly been focusing on is that, because here in that instance, what we have none of, what we have none of is like the risk that like the vision is too small, the insight is too minimal, the product will be too derivative, like all of those kind of complete in those kind of concerns you might have. The issues are like, you know, this person is probably new to entrepreneurship. Right. And so, you know, that's a learning curve that, you know, I need to be their guide in traveling and you have all kinds of risks in that sense. Right. Because it's, you know, this is just not a, that's not a occupation everyone's meant to do, but one that, you know, I've I've been really enjoying. It's been a fulfilling, you know, experience these last few years. And you mentioned at the beginning that you've also built a portfolio in Latin America and happy to say that we share some of those investments. Now, at the end of the day, an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur anywhere, you know, India, Brazil, US. Yet there are differences when you explore different markets. Maybe talk about some of the differences, if any, that you have observed between US entrepreneurs and, you know, Mexican, Colombian, and Brazilian entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, it's it's that I could remember a time when there seemed like a real this, there was a real distinction when we first started 
really spearheaded by my partner, Rodolfo Gonzalez, first started investing in, in LATAM. His first investment was, was Rappi Seed. You know, the founders that we had met up to that point, you know, they were scrappy, energetic, and, you know, so you could describe them in many positive ways, but like unsophisticated, you know, did not necessarily, you know, were clearly just making it up as they went, had not, you know, didn't really, you know, the, one of the beautiful things about Silicon Valley, obviously, is like just the, the amount of mentorship, the amount of, you know, you know, pattern recognition that entrepreneurs are able to borrow from the people that came before them. Right. And there were just, you know, in 2012, 2013, there was just, there wasn't a lot of that. Fast forward to today, I can't, you know, it's hard to tell the difference, to be honest. You know, the company that we're mutual investors in, a company called Palenka, doing some very exciting things in payroll land in Mexico and in Brazil. Those guys came from Uber and all of the things that you used to describe, you know, Uber as an exciting company initially, you know, in terms of the creativity, the aggressiveness, the speed of iteration, you know, they've absorbed every bit of that. And so it's sort of other than sort of, you know, accents and, you know, geographic remoteness, I actually feel like there's all kinds of commonality now. And, and really the challenge investing in this in the sector or in the in the region for us is just, you know, it continues to be the case that you need access to availability of capital you know, is a lot less certain. It's made huge strides, but it's nowhere near like what entrepreneurs, you know, have in, in the US. And so, you know, what does that imply about, you know, how unique of a founder you, you know, really gonna need to work with who who will, might create the whole market themselves? You know, David Velez build a new bank. Holy shit, like he's attracted more capital to Latin America startups just in his company than probably collectively everyone else raised, you know, for some period of years, right? He created the market and you still need to view entrepreneurs as that in some part in those regions, I believe. Whereas in the U.S., you don't need to, you know, it's always hopeful, but you don't necessarily need to tell that story as much as like, well, the, you know, the product will be able to speak to it, speak for itself, the traction. If the SaaS metrics are good enough, you know, that just, the, you know, the series B and C will, will do, will take care of themselves. And you know, that's a much harder story to tell, you know, in, in those regions even to today. Yeah, you have to be a lot scrappier. That is absolutely true. And I guess now, you know, as a fintech investor, you see kind of the trends they're taking over our industry. And sometimes these trends, they cross borders. Sometimes they, they happen in multiple regions at the same time. Sometimes they start in a corner and then expand. Maybe tell us about some of those interesting trends and, and verticals that, that you are looking at these days uh, very closely? Yeah. You know, it's tricky to talk about it across border because, you know, the, the regulatory structure in, in each country is, is so different. Or actually, maybe the most useful way to talk about it is the regulatory structure in the U.S. is so different from every other place on the planet that it bears resemblance to nothing. Now, a lot of other countries bear quite a bit of resemblance to each other. Uh, but nothing is like the U.S. And so it's kind of useless. All this like accrued knowledge I have about how various things work in the U.S. Are, is like kind of useless elsewhere. But, you know, so I'd say, you know, some things are, you know, crossover quite well. But like, for instance, the opportunity in the U.S. that I, you know, just can't kind of get out of my head is is sort of the, you know, to borrow the expression from DeFi, from crypto, sort of this notion of composability that each system within financial services should be able to talk to each other 
that there should be a way to, you know, access to read into those systems, to write into those systems, and that they can be uh, building blocks upon each other. You know, in many ways, it's, it's, it's sort of you could, you could, the category of being open finance, open banking. You know, Plaid, obviously, and we made huge strides here. But Plaid really, you know, what they've made great success in is, you know, enabling some degree more connectivity to bank accounts, to retail consumer bank accounts. There are a great deal, many more accounts, you know, and and systems, you know, in financial services that where they're still really the accessibility still operates the way it did before pre-internet era. And the thing that gets me into just being able to facilitate being, you know, the, the facilitate the connections, the integrations is, is interesting. And in some cases, exciting, you know, payroll is certainly a place where, you know, being able companies like Finch, being able to integrate to payroll is very valuable activity for, let's say, a 401k company. They'll pay handsomely for it. But what gets me so excited about this kind of opportunity is that what you've also done in the process of facilitating those integrations is you've made this activity so much easier, so much cheaper to do, that there are all different kinds of new applications that you could dream of making use of that data. And some of the time, those applications can be like whole new planets or you know, unto themselves. You know, I love telling the story of Highline, which is a portfolio company of mine, which is a company that's facilitating payroll-based repayment of loans and bills. And so the notion is, or the way that it works is that rather than a consumer paying, repaying a loan out of their bank account, that money gets deducted automatically from a fraction of their paycheck. If that consumer is a riskier borrower, you know, kind of lower half of the credit spectrum, let's say. And that serves to reduce the risk of default hugely, reduces majority of the risk of what that lender might see for that consumer. And so really what we have here is an opportunity to, enabled by open finance, enabled by payroll integrations, like they're a, today a customer of Argyle and some of the other payroll APIs. Enabled by that, what we have is an entirely new type of payment rail that can exist that has an opportunity to remove tens of billions of dollars of credit losses from the lender universe and let us, uh, you know, let, let aside how much like you'd save in the sort of delinquencies and just collections costs and that sort of thing. And so, but like none of this would have be, been able to be entertained until inspired by, you know, sort of wonder, how do we apply the plaid analogy to other stuff? What about payroll? What about consumer uh, consumer permission payroll? And then it's sort of like, all right, that actually works well enough. Then it's sort of highline maybe can now get to exist. And it's sort of a, a an entirely new kind of payment network. And so it's, I think we're actually still quite early in the gestation of building sufficient interoperability that we can start to realize like what other applications really have an opportunity to deliver that kind of value. That's like sort of center of the bullseye for me. And, you know, it's of course the case that that's, you know, an opportunity every in every other country, you know, and so, you know, Polenka, as we mentioned, is sort of pursuing that in, in Mexico, but it, it's one where it's sort of like the U.S. has a particular quagmire here in, in a particularly long road of adopting kind of open standards. Yeah, it's a little bit like when the smartphones were introduced, you know, combine that with GPS technology and all of a sudden you have these applications that no one thought possible before with this new technology. And the same is happening at different levels. You know, there's a, there's a great point, right? So all of a sudden, you combine those two things, GPS and the, you know, and the phone, 
and a messaging thing and maybe a payment capability. And then it's like, oh, the taxi can show up, you know, when you press a button. Right. And it's like, wow, that's cool. And it still took five years for people to realize like, oh, that doesn't, it isn't just a taxi, right? That's like, it's like 10 times more people stop owning cars because taxis actually work so well and taxis can, because they work so well, they can be so much cheaper, right? And so it's like, it's a whole new industry essentially that gets to, you know, version fourth. And so like, yeah, I think we've got a lot more of those to discover. That, yeah, that's a really good point. Zach, before we go, one question that has come up often, both with entrepreneurs and also VCs, is the question about board management. You sit on a quite a large number of boards, if I am not mistaken. So you've seen the good, the bad, and, and the ugly. Maybe share some lessons about board management, some best practices for other investors and for entrepreneurs. Yeah, certainly. Like it's an easy dynamic to to be, you know, kind of not have a lot of value, not have a lot of utility, right? Like whether it's monthly or quarterly, you're spending several hours and it's sort of like experience and drudgery. This is not like an insightful point, but it's the point that I find myself giving founders most often, which is like, don't be obstructed by the format that you have always been using to share in that board meeting, you know, kind of updates on the company and sort of guiding the conversation. Don't feel trapped by those slides, you know, and just refreshing the same charts. Who says that's the right discussion? Who says, you know, that's what everyone needs to see? Like, as the company evolves, it certainly is the case that those need to evolve. And I just see it over and over. It's like, they do. Like, they're just like, well, we got to do these charts and we're going to spend an hour and a half going through these slides. And it's sort of like, no, 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 like clean sheet of paper. What do we all need to get on the same page about? Like, what do you need us to know as the board? And then what do we need to talk about and figure out that comes from that? And, you know, let's approach that with, a, you know, a little bit of free thinking. And so that's not super obvious. It's just like, it's amazing how often that sort of does fail to actually happen. And, um, you know, when you think of your years as a VC, as an investor, what are the biggest reflections in terms of maybe earlier in your career, some mistakes that you made or things that you wish you would have done differently? You know, I think as a board member, you know, it's imperative to take a step back from like, you know, sort of your emotional response to what's happening. Because like, let's say something, the company's not doing well, it's a bad result. And all you can think about is how, you know, this kind of, you know, endangers your, you know, your own job. Because, you know, fundamentally an investor, you know, you have the privilege of being an investor in foundation. And so far as I, you know, am continuing to make money, you know, through my investments, right? And so if that turns south, you know, I've, I've got to figure out something else to do, right? And so let's say that those bad results come in and it, I think everybody goes through this and it gets talked about a lot, but it doesn't mean there's less of it, which is like the, you know, that like, you know, you, all you're experiencing is like a bit of panic and anxiety, you know, hearing these results and all of your feedback, you know, is filtered through that, you know, that veil. None of that feedback is helpful. And so this imperative to kind of spill and sort of, you know, it's sort of, this is the reality. And so therefore kind of what can be constructive, you know, here and that might, you know, there really isn't place for my emotion in this board meeting. That's like if there was a venture investing 101, right, that would be like less than one as a board member, but merits underlining. You know, as a VC, you know, I found that, you know, chasing opportunity that that hasn't been like living inside my head for uh, for a long time, something that I just learned about last week is like, has always just been a tough path. 
that for me, maybe it's just like I'm so thick-headed or I don't know what it is, but like the more that I'm able to follow a road of like, oh, this is this has been a problem I've been learning about for years, maybe decades, and that there's sort of this deep-seated kind of point of view that kind of like nothing that I learned tomorrow will fundamentally like change that, like the more the better, you know? And so for me, that sort of, it makes it tricky to sort of chase the next th- big thing around the corner. But yet that is the job, right? That is the job of like, well, now, you know, what is possible with AI is like, is it an imperative for everyone to have a, a really strong point of view on? Because it, it really does seem like, you know, it's going to have huge transformative abilities, but yet this is so new, you know? And so, you know, holding both of those ideas in my head at the same time is something that I think about a lot. So I assume you're always internally at foundation pursuing and exploring multiple theses, kind of like challenging yourselves, like what are some areas that you're observing? Is that something you're always doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So like, I, you know, I, the way I describe kind of my process, I, you know, I've got like six to 12, you know, theses more or less that are, you know, things I'm interested in. I feel like I'm gaining enough understanding of to kind of have a strong enough point of view that there could be a way to, you know, a play, a play here. And you're continuously like trying to update that mental model, right? Like, you know, you're learning new things about what's happening and you're sort of saying like, there's no way this is going to be possible, you know, in the near future, you know, or, you know, you, you meet a new company and, and they're all of a sudden their conversion funnel is magically working much better than you've ever seen anybody's work. And it's, oh, wait, this whole new opportunity, this opportunity is now back on the board. This happened with, you know, neobanks with like, you know, online checking accounts where this went off the board for the entire industry for, you know, several years, you know, to the benefit of a couple of startups. And so you're kind of constantly going into that cycle. And so then a new technology comes around, right? So we talk about AI and, you know, generalized AI. How can we make use of that, you know, against some of these problems, you know, is sort of a new variable, right? Like that's sort of the process. Fantastic. Zach, so thanks for educating all of us. I mean, Clearly, you and I share a passion for this industry. We were optimistic about where it's going, and I hope we can continue co-investing together and just collaborating, because obviously I have a massive amount of respect for the foundation team and for you. Miguel, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Zach Nurani, partner at Foundation. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>